You know, I, I truly think the only thing that could make this day any better right now is if Bubba were sitting between Sherry and Jude. He would so love to be here right now and, and hear what we just heard. We, we have just an amazing community here. It's so, so intelligent, so insightful. A lot of nice things were said about me, and I so appreciate it. But truly, I learn as much as I teach just being with these people. Our Wednesday night group, when we circle up and we're, we're talking back and forth, the, the, the wisdom that comes out of that group it's just amazing, and, uh, and I love the dialogue. And yes, we encourage everybody. You know, if you all agree with me, then there's only one person thinking in this room, and that shouldn't be. It's like, that's not it. It's not about us agreeing intellectually. It's about us standing shoulder to shoulder. It's about our lives becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what we're after. Why do we name this place The Effect? Because, as Bill read... If there's no effect, if there's no discernible change in our choices and our attitudes and our relationships, then how can we say that we're in love with God, that we are following? This is the the reality that we need to get down to. How do we do it? Well, that's kind of my task with what time is left here, is is to talk about... How do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? What, what is the, the method behind the madness here? And uh, as a day for introducing the effect, you know, it's what's the best way to kind of define what we do, to, to paint some sort of a picture? And, and that's what I'm going to try to do as best I can in, in 30 minutes, because Lord knows I don't want to hold up lunch. It looks amazing out there. <laughs> But um, just Friday night, um, having a small gathering and talking, and a young man asked me, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And that's the central question, isn't it? For any community that calls themselves Christian, for any community that is following Jesus, who is Jesus? That's the question that needs to be answered. I think there's there's a word that may help us to try to put some of this together, to, to show how it is that we are moving through this and why we're doing what we're doing. For instance, why do I sit instead of sand? Because we are looking at Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, and the Hebrew teachers sat to teach and stood to pray. You know, it's just a little nod to them, but it's also that we're all sitting down, which means we're all on the same level. You know, everybody is in the boat together. Because we have different roles doesn't mean that we're any different than all of you. We're working through our stuff. Everybody's recovering from something. And we're doing it together, and that's the beautiful thing. And so we exchange ideas. We help each other out. We lean on each other. This is the, the nature of community. And I, am, I think the thing that I'm proudest about in the last 10 years of the effect, almost 11 next May, is that we have stayed true to those founding principles, you know, that Bubba and Judy and Marion and I and Lisa and Jeff all sat around the table. These were the founding principles, and they're still there. They're still motivating and forming our choices. There's a word that uh, Leonard Sweet used, and uh, the word is epic. And as I was thinking about what's the quickest shorthand way that I could try to get across what it is we do here, I was thinking I would use that. And now, epic, we use epic all the time, right? What's epic really anyway? Well, what an epic really is, it's a long narrative poem that's focused on a central heroic character in an elevated style that, that, uh, that, that shows all these heroic and larger-than-life actions. And so if you think of Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad, you've got epic. You know, it comes from a Greek word that just means word or story or poem. 
And now in the vernacular, in the way that we use it, it's come to just mean anything that's larger than life, anything that's big, anything that's spectacular. If it's awesome, it's epic, right? Well, we're going to use epic in a little different way. The way Leonard Sweet used it, and Leonard Sweet is a Methodist minister, if you haven't heard of him before, prolific writer, just a great thinker, and someone who stands right on the transition point of where Christianity is going. Because I don't know if you realize it, but we're in a transition as a culture, really as a civilization. Western civilization since World War II has been transitioning from the modern period, which goes back 500 years to the Enlightenment in Europe, to what is being loosely called the postmodern period. And it's changing the way that we process information. It's changing the way that we think. Everything, especially since the 60s, has been changing in our culture and opening up and things are being, uh, Tina was talking about deconstruction, being deconstructed in ways that are unsettling and sometimes really detrimental. But like it or not, the change is here and it affects the church as well. And so Leonard Sweet is one of those men who stands right on that cusp and is really trying to look down the road and show us what's going on. And, And he does a brilliant job. And he said, you know what, if you look at the youngest generations in our culture, maybe we call them the millennials or whatever we call them, they process information differently than their parents did in the modern world, in the postmodern world, modern world, okay? And they do it epically. And his acronym, E-P-I-C, stands for Experiential, Participatory, Image-Based, and Communal. Okay, those are the four ways that he sees this difference. Now, he's talking about this in relationship to the church, because the church is still in the modern world. It's doing things the modern way. The kids are processing information epically, and if the church doesn't find new ways to be able to convey information, to communicate in an epic way, they're not going to be able to receive it. So think about this. Experiential. The modern world processes information propositionally. We like to propose a truth. We work it out. We take the logic and we go from premise to conclusion in a neat little line and only one thing can be true at a time and all of this sort of thing. Give a cell phone to a kid. Give a cell phone to a young person. Do they go back and start reading the manual? What the heck do they do? Give a kid a new video game. What do they do? They just start punching buttons and they just start doing it, right? It's amazing to watch them. They just directly experience what is going on. They're not waiting to try to figure it out. They don't want to read through a manual and try to figure all these details out. They just dive right in. A different way of processing information. Okay, Participatory. As opposed to, in the modern world, representational. Now here's where the medium and the message get a little mixed up in us. What we're doing right now is representational. All right? I'm up here, I'm sitting, and I'm talking to you, and you are all in these neat rows, and you're listening so attentively, and I really appreciate that. But this is representational. Go to a concert where millennials or kids are in attendance and take a look at the interaction between what's happening on the stage and what's happening at the audience. You can barely tell the difference. The only difference is one has a mic and the other doesn't. But they are as much a part of that performance, they're as much a part of that experience as anyone who's on stage. They're running around and they're dancing, they're doing this. They are participating in. They are part of the movement and the action rather than just being represented to. Image-based. Well, that's a pretty obvious one, right? Any of you who are old as dirt as me, and I wasn't saying you guys were old as dirt. You've been here since God made dirt. That's a difference, all right? You could be 20 and still been here since God made dirt. You would have been in the kid program to start, but okay. But image-based. 
when the internet first came out in the 90s, guess what? It was all words. Do you remember that? There was no graphic interface. It was just a bunch of words and links that took you this. Now, how many words are there on websites anymore? It's all image-based. You watch television. Try watching television sometime, especially commercials, and turn the sound off. And just look how fast the images cut. I mean, they're cutting multiple times per second. It's so fast, you barely get to even land on an image before it's going to the next image. Some of this stuff is subliminal, actually. It's all about images. The future of everything is video. Everything is going to video. You know, you can't just put a blog out anymore. You've got to have a video of your blog, it seems. Everything is going image-based. Images speak in a different way than words do. Instagram, Snapchat... You know, all these, these uh, different types of, uh, of, of websites, Pinterest, that are focusing on the image rather than the word to communicate what needs to be communicated. And the last one, communal. Of course, of course as opposed to individual or individualistic. It's the peculiarity of Western civilization to hold up the individual as the basic unit of human experience. Because in the East and in the ancient world, the community was the basic unit. The individual only existed to serve the good of the community. Now what happens in, in, uh, in the West? We have the idea that the state exists to preserve the rights of the individual. Very different, right? We look at the individual as the basic unit as opposed to the community. Sweet had a really interesting observation. He said that when Princess Diana died, and I know that's getting to be a long time ago, but think about it. You know, whenever anyone dies, all of these impromptu shrines kind of materialize at the spot on the street where they died. In front of Buckingham Palace in London, when Princess Diana died, there was this huge mountain of flowers. Do you remember that? And all these young people who so identified with her, bringing flowers and creating this communal heap this communal mound, this burial mound, if you will. And yet, each individual bouquet was still wrapped in cellophane. And so it's as if the kids were saying, we all want to be part of this. We want to connect together. We want to be a part of this, ex- this grieving experience. But we're also retaining a little bit of our individuality. The kids are deeply connected through technology and community. And they're using the internet and social media, again, sometimes to the detriment, but that's their way of having a bit of separateness, but also community at the same time. And so if you take a look at each one of those four and you say, okay, young people are experiencing and processing life so differently than we have done for the last 500 years. What are we going to do about it? How is this, how is this going to work? And Here's where the light really went on for me, and this is why I think it's so important for us to understand this concept, is that I was reading uh, Leonard Sweet, and I was thinking about this, and realized, yes, he's absolutely right. I can look at my kids, and I can see this. I never thought there'd be a generation gap between me and my kids, that I'd stay cool for life. Well, guess what? Generation gap, you know? So I can see the difference. But as I was studying and continuing to study the ancient roots of Christianity, the Hebrew roots of Christianity, where the light went on was to realize that the ancients were epic too. They were absolutely epic. Those ancient people, those ancient Hebrews who wrote our scriptures were epic. They didn't process life. They didn't look at the world. They didn't have a worldview that was like modern Westerners. They were experiential. They were participatory. They were image-based. And they were communal, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And so here's a book, here's 66 books, this, this Bible, these scriptures, that we revere and we use them to inform us about what our spirituality is supposed to look like, who Jesus is. But it's an epic book. And we're reading it through a Western lens. We're reading it as if it's propositional, trying to propose some kind of linear truth, some kind of logical, rational fact. We're looking at it in in a representational way that I can sit back here and something can be downloaded into me that's going to change my life. We're looking at it as a word-based rather than evocatively, as an image-based, even though they're words. Think about how Jesus communicated. He used words as pictures. And then, of course, community. Everything in the scripture is about the community being the basic unit of human experience, that we all must belong And so you take those ideas and you start to bring them together and say, okay, how does this work for us? How does this work if we're trying to be a faith community that is really going to take Scripture seriously? When it comes to Scripture, I want to be the most literal guy in the room. But that means that I have to go back to the original culture, mindset, language, and understand what they would have understood by these words as best as scholarship can possibly give us so that we can get to what is really going on. To take our scriptures epically, to look at first this idea of experience, what is that basically telling us? It's telling us that our faith life, our walk through this life spiritually, and our faith walk religiously as part of our faith communities, is primarily experiential and not intellectual. That's a huge difference. For 500 years, we've been processing the scriptures intellectually. We've been trying to come to a mental ascent about things. We use theology as a measuring rod to try to give us an accurate description of the infinite God. How is that even possible? Well, the short answer is it's not. There is no way that finite language, finite minds, living in a world bounded by space and time, can in any way accurately express the ineffable the infinite. It's not possible. And so we fight and we excommunicate and we we beat people up over things that we can't really know. We don't know that our theology is right. It's not primarily an intellectual experience. Primarily, it's about knowing at a different level. The Hebrew word for knowing is yada. Okay, In Aramaic, it's yada, but it's the same consonants there. The first letter is yod, which in the original pictograph was just a picture of a hand, a forearm and a hand, just like this, right? Now think about the letter Y in our alphabet. It's still there, right? That shape is still there. It's a stylized hand. To use the hand as the main consonant for the word to know is telling the Hebrew mind, or the Hebrew mind is telling the people through this word, that to know is to be able to handle something, not to be able to think about it, but to be able to handle it. It's like a journeyman carpenter who knows his or her tools so well that they can feel the weight and shape of them in their hands even when they're not present. It's like a musician, you know, watching these guys play, especially watching Nolan play violin. He can feel the shape of that violin. He can feel the strings under his fingers even when it's not there. It's burned into muscle memory. That's the kind of knowing. Ezekiel uses know God over 70 times in his one book. 
But to know God is not what we think about in terms of knowing God. To know God is to be able to handle God, to have handled God, to have a day-by-day intimate connection. It's like hanging your toothbrushes side by side and living together with someone. That's the kind of knowing. Otherwise, what have we got? We think of knowing Jesus as knowing Jesus intellectually through some sort of theology. I remember before I circled around from Catholicism back to Christianity in an evangelical setting, I spent a year in the Mormon church. I was so curious and I was so impressed with their sense of community and the quality of the people that I had met who were Mormon. And I spent a year in that church. Now, ultimately, I I couldn't get my head around the theology and I, I had to leave again but I carried a lot of respect for the people there who truly believe that they're following Jesus. They just have another book, right? And so I get to the evangelical setting, and the first thing out, well, Mormons are going to hell. I said, well, why is that? They think they're Christians. They're following the wrong Jesus. Okay, just that attitude. What have you ever believed about that? But that's setting up knowing Jesus in an absolutely intellectual way as a dividing line between what, heaven and hell or whatever else we can think of. And yet the scriptures are written from this experiential point of view. To know is to be intimately connected with on a day-to-day basis. Very, very different way. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus paints this picture. There will be those who come to my Father and say, hey, let me in to the kingdom. And, you know, I did all these great things. I built satellite networks for, for you and I did all, you know, I don't know you. We can be working so hard for agendas and causes within our religion, within what we say is our faith, and yet we're not having the kind of intimacy that is the knowing that Jesus is talking about. We have to try to get this different idea, come back and move beyond just theology. And yes, we need a balance. There needs to be a balance, because it's not a free-for-all here. But I love the way the Eastern Orthodox churches formulate their idea of theology. Their idea of theology, theology is there to limit error. It puts the guardrails on the road. It gives you the the extent of the playing field, if you will. Rather than Western theology that says, yes, we can accurately describe the nature of the Godhead. That's a very different kind of proposition. We do need theology, but we need to balance it with experience. And we need to put theology in its right place so that we don't miss the opportunity to experience God even if it's, if it's with someone with a purple beard. You see, can you do that? Can you let go of some of the hard and fast rules that you have and just be, see what's here, immerse yourself in the moment? It's the difference between certainty and conviction. Faith is not about certainty. In fact, certainty is the opposite of faith. Certainty is the faith killer. Our faith is going to be lived out in the midst of the mystery, in the midst of the things that we still don't know, but in the midst of the things that we have become convinced of because we have experienced them in a way that we know that we know that we know. Even if I can't prove it to you, I know. See, that's the difference. And it changes everything about the way that we experience our faith walk. Participatory. This is the difference between first person and third person. You know, I'm sorry, but there are just some things in life that can't be transferred. You know? I can play guitar. I can't give that to you. I can't turn off that cell phone. See, some things cannot be transferred. 
<laughs> if you can ride a bike, if you can speak a second language, you can't give those to anybody. In fact, the most important things, the most valuable things in life can never be transferred. They have to be experienced. You have to spend time immersing yourself in these things. You cannot be given your faith. You can't sit there in those seats and have me or anybody else talk to you and give you a faith that is going to get you through the most difficult places in life. What Bill said is absolutely true. We here have gone through, all of us have gone through difficult things in life. And that crucible, that, that, that grief that we have moved through has changed the way that we look at life. And we realize the faith that we had before that was transferred to us didn't sustain us through the difficulties that we faced. You know, some of you have lost children. You've lost all sorts of loved ones in your life. You've lost livelihoods. How do you deal with that? How do you stand in the smoking crater that was your life and now be able to move forward with hope, with the attitude that says, yes, everything somehow is going to be all right? That is the faith that has become personal to you because you participated in it. You have moved through it and you have made it yours. There is no other way to do this. We are not here to tell you what to think. Far be it. I'm not a preacher. A preacher is persuading. I'm a teacher. A teacher, a good teacher, should simply be be engaging the student into their own journey, into their own walk toward whatever knowing that they are going to go after in their lives. Because you need to participate. You need to pick up this journey and take it yourself. And we'll be all there together, walking down this path together. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's not passive. It can never be passive. It must be active and it must be participatory in every single one. You know, the original first followers of, of, of Jesus, the, the Jewish Christians, did not call themselves Christians. That name didn't come for, for generations later and it was applied by, by non-Christian Gentiles. They didn't even call themselves followers of Jesus. They called themselves followers of the way. Now, they identified that Jesus was the way, but they had to follow the way to the Father. They had it right. They had the, the, the hammer right on the head of the nail. If we don't participate, if we don't engage, then we're not going to be able to experience what Jesus is trying to get us to experience in terms of the abundant life. Image-based. That may be a little trickier for us because the Bible is full of words. I mean, some of your editions have pictures, but they weren't there originally. You know that, right? But think about the way that Jesus used words. He used words to paint pictures. He used words to tell stories that painted pictures in our minds, that took us on rides and took us on, on these, these kind of you know, circuits. And, and they, were, they were experiential, even like thought experiments that he was taking his, his hearers on and us by extension. This is the difference between metaphor and logic or rational thinking. Because if we're going to talk about God as an infinite being who stands outside of space and time, the only language we can use is metaphor and figures of speech. And this is what the Bible does throughout all the books. But Jesus is a brilliant master at using parables and stories. When you ask Jesus a direct question, what do you get? You don't get a direct answer. (laughs) Usually you get another question back. Usually what you get. Or you get a complete non sequitur. He'll just start someplace in the middle of something else trying to get you to take this quantum leap with him because he knows just by virtue of you asking the question in the way that you asked it with the expectation that you can get some sort of answer downloaded to you 
that is going to change everything, man, that's your problem. You're addicted to your thinking. You've got to break that first before anything else can happen afterwards. And so Jesus is using this image-based language that can take us someplace where the logic can't go. Just like we talked about with the music, it takes you automatically into your right mind, right? It takes you to a different place. Jesus' language does the same thing. It's like prose music, if you will, you know, trying to get us to a different place, to break down the obsession that we have for the illusion of intellectual certainty. Our fear wants us to have certainty intellectually. That's what we want. We want those answers that will just nail everything down. And Jesus will just beat us up at that point. Kindly. He'll take us on a different journey. Because that's not where it works. That's nothing that is going to take us where we want to go. And is not a way to the Father. The finally communal, of course, this is versus individual. We talked about the basic unit of human experience always being the community until the Greeks started to move it into an individual nature. And so you have this difference between ancient East, where the community is the basis, and then Western Christianity. But even the early church, which of course was still pretty Eastern in its thinking, there was a saying in, in early Christianity in Latin, it's nullus Christianus, uh, I'm sorry, unus Christianus, nullus Christianus. What it means is one Christian is no Christian. Even to the idea of salvation, salvation couldn't be attained alone. Salvation was always in concert with the entire community, everyone together. The actual name of God in, in Hebrew is Elohim. In, in Aramaic, it's Elaha. And what it means is this unity, this oneness, but not a singularity. It's multiple things functioning as one. Very different we don't get that in the West anymore. We are so individualized. We are so individualistic. We lionize and we uh, celebrate those individuals who stand alone and above and beyond and outside the crowd. You know, Even if it's Batman or Clint Eastwood riding through the town, doing the things and then going on again. You know, Though that image, that iconic kind of cultural image is so seared into us that we don't even realize how far we have moved from being able to just allow ourselves to be in part of a group. This, this, this community, this unity is everything. I, I was talking to, <laughs> he's not quite an atheist, but he's, let's say, an agnostic atheist. How about that? You know, he's, he's on that side. And we're trying to have a conversation. He actually was coming to me for counseling. But I could see that a lot of the problem that he's having in, in, in his life was stemming from even not so much the atheism per se, but what I, I had to ask him was, can you at least as a starting place, even not trying to change your religious or spiritual beliefs or however you want to put them at, at the moment, if you can't agree to mentally assent to a notion of God, can you at least see that you could live as though there were something greater than yourself that was worth submitting to, immersing in? Is there at least that? Because if there is, and it can be anything, it doesn't, it doesn't take God off the table for right now. Is it a friend? Is it a lover? 
Is it a wife, a husband, a marriage, a family, a child, a team, a country, a land? Could it be nature? Could it be any of that that you see as greater than yourself and worthy of submitting to? Losing the hard edges of yourself as you just sort of merge with. If you can do that under any of those circumstances, regardless of what you believe theologically, boy, you're getting close to God now. However you understand that term, however you visualize, you're starting to move in that direction and it will soften you up and it'll take you on this epic journey and who knows where that's going to lead and who knows where that's going to land. But start the journey. We have to have that sense of community to be able to melt into the whole, to let go of of the death grip, the stranglehold we have on self and what we think that means and allow it to be used for the good of everyone around us, for the greater good of everyone around us. Stop and think for a minute what an epic life would really look like if you could really live it. How would these four principles change everything in your life? Well, what it would look like, it would be looking like Jesus, of course. Jesus was living this. Here we are trying to emulate Jesus. We're trying to understand who he is. This is the way that he processed life and relationship and love. His choices, his teachings, the relationships from a Hebrew point of view are all rooted here. And when we begin to live epically, then we start to break down the barriers that we have erected to being able to really experience the effect of God's love in our life. Some of you would say, yeah, we've been going to church forever, but I, you know, things are still so hard and I'm still so tense. And, well, but are you living epically within the community or the religion that you have chosen? This is where we need to go. I wanted to read just this little clip from Mark 4. Because here's Jesus trying to give voice to exactly what we're talking about here. About this different way of looking at kingdom in this case. Which was his metaphor, his picture of the quality of life that we can have right here and right now when we are connected with God. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It's such a simple little story. You'll just speed by it at 60 miles an hour. Because this one, you know, what's that all about? But stop and think for a minute in the context of what we're talking about. The kingdom of heaven is not about certainty. The kingdom of heaven is not about understanding the mechanics of how things work. He has no idea how it works. He just spreads out the seed, makes sure there's water there, and goes to bed. And stuff is happening without his permission or volition. It's just happening, and he doesn't need to understand it. He just knows that when the crop is ready, he can harvest it, and his family is going to be preserved. He doesn't have to understand And even if he did understanding, it wouldn't make the grass grow any faster or any better for the understanding. It's going to do what it does, right? And even if you do understand it, it's still no less miraculous 
than if that head just sprouts out of the ground and you're just amazed because you have no idea what happened there. Can we participate in that? Can we participate in the sense of the miraculous and the wonder, even if we do understand more things scientifically now than 2,000 years ago? Can we retain that kind of attitude, that kind of wonder? Can we participate in something that is larger and beyond ourselves and just let the understanding go for a while and see where the epic journey starts to take us? Because where it's going to take us is finally to trust. Trust doesn't require understanding. Trust does require intimate relationship. And that's what we're after, to really know God. I wanted to read, and I know we're getting close, but I'm getting close too. I wanted to read just a a, a journal entry. And this is from 20-some years ago. But it was my moment like this moment that Jesus is talking about, where I finally started to relax the death grip that I had on the certainty and the agenda and the outcome that I thought I wanted and needed and how I was going about getting it in my existential crisis that uh, I guess I had to look up at one time too with Steve. But anyway, this one's dated Monday, and it's February 7th, 1994, at 6.35 a.m. Yes, I am a little OCD. I'm proud of it. Storm has been coming for two days. Right on schedule, storm is here. Not much of a storm right now, just a gentle rain in the gray outside my half-opened window. The rain is hard enough to make a continuous sound, but still light enough to hear individual drops. As I listen, I can hear where they are falling, on concrete or on wide leaves of shrubbery, on the steel drums of the barbecue pits. I can hear where they are in space, some close, others falling into the middle distance of the courtyard, others much softer, blending into delicate white noise several hundred feet away. Little drops have made it through the maze of barren branches to directly hit their targets. Other larger drops have collected on branches or rain gutters and hit with a heavier splat. It all makes a beautifully spacious music. I can't tell you how pleasing it is to sit here in natural light and just be here sitting in natural light sitting, listening, trying to write, but drifting back off into the rain. This storm has been coming for two days. I heard about it Saturday morning. After the rain Friday, the air was clean and the patches of sky between the high shifting cumulus formations were very blue, the way it only is after rain, immediately after. And I thought about this storm still hundreds of miles out to sea, squalling uselessly over the face of the water, unheated except by satellites passing overhead and occasional ships underneath. After all, the fish couldn't get any wetter. It's been coming all this time, while I had lunch and read, while I came home and worked at the computer until 11.30, while I was running yesterday morning before church, while my pastor thundered his sermon, while I bought a friend a birthday present and then worked again at the computer until it was time to go to the birthday dinner. And sometime while I slept, it arrived. The leading edges of the cloud system looked blindly down as the monotonous face of the water gave way to white diagonal lines of breakers dissipating against the sand, and then to the strip of coastal highway beyond the sand and the six short miles of rooftops and parking lots until it looked down and did not see the little wooded courtyard outside my window. Sometime while I slept, the wind picked up a bit. Sometime while I slept, 
first drops began to fall. All this without my knowledge or permission or volition. While I lived my last two days, while I slept, I simply wake up to the gift of this beautiful sound, to an hour of precious solitude with my window and my Lord and these words that you had no idea were being written for you while you lived your life and slept and that have been on their way to you ever since until the pages were placed in your hands to sit on your shelf until you first cracked the cover and waded through page after page until you came to this very word and then moved on. I am told the storm will last until tomorrow. Then we will have another clean blue day. Eventually we will have another storm. I don't know when. I am glad not to know such things, to wake up and find that storms need nothing from me, but graciously include me in all they have to give. Eventually, we will have another storm. I will try to spend some time with it also. That's as epic as I can get. And on a good day, I can be that epic. You know, these last few days with the rain and the clouds, it's just been amazing. I I, kind of just glide off in between them. But this is what Jesus is showing us as the only way to Father. Jesus is the way, this way to Father. There's only one way, and it's through this kind of submission, this kind of immersion, this kind of participation, this experience. If we can, if we're willing to shed some skin here, to let go, we can begin to experience a Father that we can't understand mentally, and we can't control, of course. So who is Jesus to me? And come back to that. I can tell you that Jesus is the center of my universe. He's the center of everything, all my choices. On a good day, he's the center of my choices, and he's at the center of my awareness. Yeah? We can all relate to that. He's the center of my universe, but I can't define him for you theologically. He's my center. He is one with the Father. Absolutely one. He said that over and over again. Everything I do is only what the Father does, what I've seen the Father doing. I take no initiative on my own. Everything passes from the Father to me. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen me. Who Jesus is to me is absolutely one with the Father, but I can't tell you how. I can't tell you the mechanics of it. I can't tell you when it happened in his life. We all have speculations. It doesn't really matter anymore. He is absolutely one with the Father. He is a Father in human form. I don't need to look any further. He's the center. He's the core. He's the way shower, right? He's the teacher. He's the model. He's the healer. He's the motivator. And he's telling me that I can do the things that he's doing if I will follow this way. But at the same time, he's the way itself. He's the journey and the journey's end. He's the source of all my hope. I'll follow him in this life and the next with absolute abandon. I trust him that much because of what we've been together through for the last 25 years. And if that sounds a little too loose for you, a little too squishy, if it sounds like I've missed some really key theological points, (laughs) why yes it does (laughs) because it's epic it's the way that I have experienced Jesus in those moments of my life 
And after all, that's what I was asked to begin with. Who is Jesus to me? That's who Jesus is to me. I know it's not a satisfying theological answer. It was never meant to be. But I think this is what Jesus is asking of us. What he asked his followers at Mark 8, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And by extension, he's asking us the same question. Who do you say that he is? And the only way, always and only way, that a question like that can ever be answered is epically, in every sense of that word. Are we willing, are we ready to take an epic journey together? That's what we're all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the trail of breadcrumbs that you leave us, that you've always left us. Thank you for never leaving or forsaking us, no matter where we go astray off of that trail. Thank you for always having our best interest at heart. Thank you for never, ever allowing us to leave your thoughts, even for a moment. For caring about us as much as you do. For drawing us constantly to yourself. Help us to overcome whatever fear, whatever barriers, whatever edges or boundaries we need to, to resolve, to have the desire to resolve that we are going to take this journey. We are going to follow this way wherever it leads and we'll be as fearless about it as we can until at least we've learned to trust more. But thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful gathering of people that make this possible. We need each other. Help us to realize that enough that we start to actually connect with each other and hold hands along this way. Help us to love as you loved and never let us forget. We can only love at all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks. Let's all stand.